invite you to open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the fifth book of the Bible, near the beginning. The book of Deuteronomy takes place after the people of Israel have been wandering in the desert for 40 years, and they're now on the brink of the promised land. And most of the book is Moses giving them this long pep talk, reminding them of God's faithfulness and encouraging them to follow God's commands. So that is the context of our passage today. And I'm going to need your help saying these first two verses. You guys remember the hand motions we learned? Um, Joel, can we get the next slide? The two verses are up there again. Um, And kids and adults, I invite you to say and sign them with me as we um, read these together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Thank you. Continuing with verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them. When you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. This is a short little passage, but there's so much to it. In my Hebrew class this past year, we spent a whole semester studying this passage. This morning, we only have about 25 minutes or so. So I want to invite us to approach it like a five-course meal. We'll move through it slowly, chewing on each verse as it comes, savoring the words in our minds and mouths, and letting them nourish our hearts. The first course is the first verse which tells us that God is one. What does that mean, that God is one? The Hebrew word for one is echad. Can everyone say echad? Nice, one more time, echad. That means one, only, or alone. And there are several good ways to translate and interpret this verse. But today I propose that we think of God's oneness not as quantitative, but qualitative. So not as a statement about God's numerical oneness, but about God's character. God is unified within God's self. God is not distracted or fragmented or divided in God's intentions, but integrated and whole. God is echad. Now, we humans, on the other hand, tend to be more distracted or fragmented. Our passions, intentions, and loyalties are divided. Have you experienced this? Like, maybe you're listening to your child or spouse tell you about their day, but you're thinking about something else. Or you know you should do your homework, but all you really want to do is play Fortnite. You have every intention of writing that card, replying to that email, calling your friend, but somehow you end up zoning out in front of a screen and the time is gone. 
the things we should do compete with the things we want to do, and the things we want to do compete with our values. Our devotions and desires are divided. We are not echad. We are not always whole. And we are not only divided within our own hearts, but as peoples, as communities. Last week, the New York Times reported that hate crimes in America have risen for the third year in a row. They reported that three out of five hate crimes are motivated by race and ethnicity. And the next biggest motivators are religion and sexual orientation. We live in a world that is broken, that is marked sometimes more often by hatred than love. And we see this not just in the news, but in the workplace, at school, in the neighborhood, at the corner store. We are divided as peoples. Left to our own devices, we are not echad. Yet, the remainder of this passage, and indeed much of scripture, is a call for us to be echad, as God is echad. To be whole and unified in right relationship within ourselves, with our neighbors, and with God. Thankfully, we are not left to our own devices, and the rest of this passage clarifies that call and gives us some practical steps towards wholehearted living. So this brings us to the second course in our five-course meal, which we embodied this morning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the call for us to live as people who are echad. And looking at the Hebrew gives us an interesting perspective on this. So first, heart. The Hebrew word here can mean both heart and mind. It refers to the seat of emotion and intellect. So we are to love God with all of our thoughts and feelings. Now granted, this isn't always easy, but here are two words of encouragement. The first is from Mr. Rogers. Any Mr. Rogers fans? All right. He says that feelings are mentionable and manageable. Isn't that great? The second is from Paul in 2 Corinthians, who encourages us to take every thought captive to Christ. These are reminders that we are not enslaved to our thoughts and feelings. We can have control over them. We can bring the whole of our hearts and minds to the Lord, as fragmented as they may be, and ask God to use it for God's glory. God already knows what's in our hearts and minds, and God asks that the whole of our interior life, every thought and feeling, reflect our love for God. Then we have, love the Lord your God with all your soul. This word refers to everything that makes up a living being. So like the word for heart, it encompasses emotions, passions, intentions, and feelings, everything of the inner life. But this Hebrew word can also mean household. It's the same word used in Genesis when God calls Abraham to a new land, so he and his household go together. So this is not just internal things, but perhaps everything within our immediate sphere of influence. 
We are to love the Lord our God, not only with our inner lives, but in the ways we relate to children, parents, spouses, roommates, visitors, and pets. The rhythms of our home life should reflect and demonstrate our love for God. Then finally, love the Lord your God with all your... Yeah. The Hebrew word here is not actually strength. Are you ready for this? It's the word very, the adverb. It's the same word used in Genesis 1 when God looks at creation and says it is very good. Love God with all your very. Strength is not a bad translation, given that we're dealing with an adverb. But in this context, if we've got the inner life and then the household or sphere of influence, um, perhaps this is a step further encouraging us to love God with everything at our disposal, all of our resources and abilities. It's like the superlative of all that we have and are. We bring our best and most that we have to offer to God. In the ways we use our time, the places we shop, the food we eat, the ways we care for strangers, our interactions with coworkers and neighbors, God asks that every aspect of our lives, internal and external, reflect our love for God. Now, can anyone guess how many times the word you or your is used in this passage? Or you can count, but it might take you a little while. Any guesses? More than seven. More than 12. Less than 20. (laughs) Uh, It's used 15 times in six verses. Uh, And like other languages, Hebrew has a singular you and a plural you. Every time in this passage, it is a singular you or singular your. Now, is this addressed to a single individual? No, it's addressed to the whole community of Israel. But they see themselves as a single unit. These instructions are for the people of God as a unified group. Hear, O Israel... Hear, O Creston, love the Lord your God with all your collective heart and all your collective soul and all your collective strength or resources and abilities. This passage is also a call to unity. It's a call to be echad, one, as a community of people of God. It is a call to be unified, but not uniform. To be clear, it's not a call to sameness or homogeneity. It's a call to unity in our diversity, for we are richer because of it. We are each different members of the body of Christ, and each member in its uniqueness is essential to the working of the whole body. This brings us to course three. So if the first two courses are like the appetizers, the next three courses are a little more filling. They address the question of how do we do this? How do we live more wholeheartedly, more echad? This one is verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Perhaps our first question is, what commandments? Again, the book of Deuteronomy is the sermon Moses gives the people of Israel, reminding them of God's covenant faithfulness and encouraging them to live faithfully in the promised land that they're about to enter. 
you can read the specifics later in Deuteronomy if you want to. But this morning we can think of these commandments generally as the word of God and God's instructions for living well, which are found in Deuteronomy and throughout the whole Bible. This verse is one of many passages in the Old Testament that talks about God's word being written on human hearts. The word of God is not just something we read during morning devotions or at church on Sundays. It is to be living in our hearts, embodied within us. What sorts of things do you hold in your hearts or know by heart? There may be some things that take up space, maybe preamble to the Constitution or some movie quotes or... Um, phone numbers from the days before cell phones. But what's in your hearts that's forming you spiritually? What gets prime real estate in your heart or mind? I bet some of you carry around, in fact, I know some of you carry around, uh, a list of people you're praying for. Maybe portions of a creed or the Lord's Prayer or a catechism. Sections of scripture Songs we sing in worship, words we say here every week. In many Jewish communities, from ancient times to today, this passage that we recited this morning is recited every day, multiple times a day, as a way to refocus on God and God's instructions. Inviting the word of God in and hosting it in our hearts is the first step towards living wholeheartedly. Inviting the word of God in and hosting it in our hearts shapes us to look more like Christ, the word incarnate. And that begins here, through worship, through liturgy, which is just the patterns and rhythms of worship we participate in together, which shape us. It is through liturgy that we begin to embody the word of God and make space for it in our hearts. Here we use our voices, ears, arms, and lungs. We wave prayer ribbons. We receive bread and juice. We play instruments. We share God's peace. The liturgy bags contain rocks to remind us of the weight of our sin, and crosses to remind us that our sin is forgiven in Christ. The font reminds us of our new life in Christ. In children's worship, we light candles. When we blow them out and see the smoke, we think of what? The Holy Spirit. We fill Peter fish with coins and we bring them as part of the offering. We sing and clap and listen and watch. And these things become a part of us. They live inside us, reminding us of God's goodness and grace. That is what worship, or liturgy, does. And if we don't let the liturgy of God's word form and shape us, other liturgies will. What other things are being written on your hearts? Calvin College philosophy professor Jamie Smith writes about cultural liturgies, which just means rituals and practices in our culture that shape our identity. And in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, he talks about the cultural liturgy of the shopping mall. So he has this theory that if aliens 
came to Earth and observed people going to malls all over the world, they would think it was a religious practice. I'm going to read an excerpt from his book, see if this sounds accurate to you or not. I won't ask how many of you were there this weekend. <laughs> so here, using satire, he describes the mall sort of like a medieval cathedral. Every day of the week, thousands of people make the pilgrimage to the sacred building. From the massive parking lot, you recognize the tall glass doors and chromed arches. As we enter the space, we are ushered into a narthex of sorts, with worship aids to orient visitors. There are windows on the ceiling, conveying a sense of vertical and transcendent openness, but no windows in the exterior walls to the clamor and distractions of the horizontal, mundane world. You recognize the banners, colors, and symbols that mark the unfolding of holidays and festivals. We are ushered away from the outside world into a labyrinth lined by chapels devoted to various saints. Saint Macy, Saint Starbuck, Saint Apple. There are three-dimensional icons, statues, and moving images that embody the good life and call us to imitate them. As we pause to reflect on some of the icons outside one of the chapels, we're invited in by an usher who offers to shepherd us through the experience, but also lets us explore on our own terms. We come expectant, knowing what we need must be there, and when we find it, we bring our newfound holy object to the altar, to a priest who presides over the consummating transaction. We give our donation and leave with a tangible object that confirms our participation in the good life. Whew. Now, this is tongue-in-cheek. It's supposed to be comical. But did you feel a grain of uncomfortable truth? It brings up kind of a scary question. Are we more shaped by the liturgy of the mall or the liturgy of worship? This is not to say that the mall is evil, but perhaps it reveals something of a cultural idol. It's one example, there are many, of how cultural liturgies and practices have a hold on us and shape us in ways we might not even be aware of. He goes on to talk about cultural liturgies of academia and nationalism, which you can read about in that book if you want. And of course, this ties right into Black Friday, this unofficial holiday for the purpose of shopping. Although it's technically the day after Thanksgiving, in many places, Black Friday sales start on Thanksgiving Day. It's like we set aside an afternoon to give thanks for what we have, and then spend the evening buying more, because apparently what we have isn't actually enough. The word holiday, by the way, means holy day. We as a society have set apart a day for the holy activity of shopping to worship the idols of consumerism. And while the cost at retail stores may be largely reduced, I wonder if it comes without a cost to our hearts. Now, I'm not saying you're a bad person if you went shopping on Black Friday, but I want us to think critically about what's forming us. How do things like consumerism get a hold of us? Smith says it's not through explicit messages, 
but through visible, tactile, colorful icons and practices that we start to imitate, that start to seep into our imaginations and hearts and redirect our desires. Perhaps we need to reclaim a focus on what truly matters, to retrain our hearts and minds and bodies through worship on Sundays and throughout the week so that we reorient our desires towards the things of God's kingdom and become more wholehearted. Perhaps we need to develop counter-liturgies or counter-cultural liturgies here at church and in our own homes. So this brings us to course four, which is verse seven. Impress, or in Hebrew, repeat these teachings to your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Again, it's liturgy. What we believe and how we live are nourished by repeated practices that shape us. Think about the ways your faith has been shaped by those before you. Can you think of someone who repeated God's words to you? And how are we encouraging others in their faith formation? Whenever someone is baptized or becomes a member here, we make vows together to support that person in faith. What routines and habits, or perhaps countercultural liturgies, could you adopt that nurture faith? It could be as simple as praying before bed, maybe with family or housemates. You could invite everyone at the dinner table or the lunchroom to share something they're grateful for any day, not just on Thanksgiving. Before going to bed, you could write a list of 10 things you're grateful for. You could make a habit of writing little notes to family members or coworkers. Advent begins next week and is a great time to start spiritual practices with tangible components like lighting Advent candles in your home. Maybe it's as simple as finding a prayer or psalm that you say each morning as soon as you wake up to orient your day towards God from the very beginning. How beautiful would it be for the word of God to be the first thing that comes to our mind in the mornings and the last thing we think about before we fall asleep, written on our hearts, sustaining us moment by moment. Developing practices like these are not meant to be a nuisance, nor a way to earn salvation, but rather a constant reminder of God's presence that sustains us through the day. Verse 7 is an invitation to invite your children or neighbors or housemates or friends or coworkers into those practices, to talk about it throughout the day. Faith is to be interwoven into the whole of our lives, and as we do that, we become more whole, more echad. Many of you are familiar with the Najoni House, a few doors down, where Nick and I live with several Calvin College students in intentional Christian community. And the structure of that community includes built-in rhythms to help hold us accountable to loving God and loving our neighbors. So we gather several times weekly for Bible study and meals together, We share our groceries in common and cook for each other, accommodating food allergies and preferences, and we try to regularly invite other people over for dinner. And many of you have rhythms like this too, 
Maybe you come to Coffee Break Bible Study, or you're part of a house church, or you make regular visits to the Christian rest home to commune with our brothers and sisters there. Practices like these are countercultural liturgies, which shape us, redirecting our desires and devotions to reflect love of God and love of neighbor. And this brings us to Course 5, which is verses 8 and 9. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them, these words, on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is all about visible, tangible reminders to draw near to God. A few years ago, Creston's anti-racism team was getting ready to do this big training with some local churches. And for about two months leading up to the training, we had a prayer schedule. So every day, one or two people would be praying throughout the day. And one team member suggested, as a way to remember when it was your day to pray, that you wear a watch on the opposite wrist or a bracelet you don't usually wear or some physical, tangible reminder so that whenever you felt or saw the thing that wasn't usually there, you remembered to pray. It was very effective. That's what this verse makes me think of. It's about planting physical, visual reminders of God's word in our daily lives. Verse 8 in Hebrew, bind them on your foreheads, is literally, let them be a symbol between your eyes. Now, if something's between your eyes, you can't not see it. Some of us have something between our eyes, glasses. It's like God's word is to be at the forefront of our vision, refocusing what we look at and directing our gaze towards the things of the kingdom. John Calvin talks about scripture as the lenses through which we see God more clearly with the help of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 9, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. We're human. We get distracted and we forget and we need reminders of God's teachings and promises. Perhaps the whole world is strewn with reminders, but sometimes we fail to see them. We need to set up reminders as well. In the Old Testament, people frequently built a monument of rocks to commemorate specific instances of God's goodness. Maybe it's not a pile of rocks in your home. Maybe it is. But perhaps a place where people can write God's stories or prayer requests. Maybe it's a verse of scripture on your mirror or on a post-it note by the door. We need reminders of God's goodness to sustain us and give us hope. And furthermore, if God's words were written on our doorposts and city gates, who else would see them? Not just the people of Israel, but anyone who came into a house or city. Anyone coming into a home would see the words of God written on the doorposts and know something is different here. We need reminders of God's teachings throughout the day so they can shape the whole of our lives. In every deed bound to our hands, in every thought bound to our heads, in every desire bound to our hearts. When Jesus is asked in the New Testament, what is the greatest commandment? He quotes the second verse of this passage, 
which we have embodied with sign language today. And then he goes on to add the second greatest commandment, which is like it. He quotes a verse from Leviticus that says, love your neighbor as yourself. Those two are closely connected. And I want to close with one quick specific example of this from the Najoni house. About a year ago, several of us were at home in the evening when there was a knock on the door. It was a neighbor we'd never met, asking if someone could give him a ride across town to Walmart where his son's car had broken down. We did not know this man, but he had heard about our house. The Najoni house, as an extension of this church, had a reputation of love and generosity. Now in situations like this, it's very easy to make excuses. We're too busy, we don't know the man, we don't know if they're being honest, they might not deserve it. But at the end of the day, those things don't matter. It's about loving God and loving our neighbors, every one of whom is made in the image of God. And friends, the world is watching. And as several of us looked at each other blankly, our student Greg dropped what he was doing, grabbed his coat and shoes and said, let's go, I can take you. Practicing countercultural liturgies prepares us for moments like that. We are a community of faith and our calling is to wholeheartedness and unity to love God with our whole heart, our whole being, our whole strength, and everything at our disposal, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together.